2: You're listening to Facing Evil, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV. This podcast contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
3: Hello everyone, welcome back to Facing Evil. I'm Rasha Pecorero. And a big welcome back to my beautiful sister.
4: Yes, buongiorno, everyone. I am Yvette Gentile, and as Rasha said, I am back from Italia, which was amazing, but I'm also equally excited to be back in the studio with my A-team, and I'm especially excited because we have a guest in the house today that I am really looking forward to speaking with.
3: Yes, I'm looking forward to that as well. But first, we are going to be looking at the story of Irma Martinez. Irma was a Filipino live-in maid for a wealthy family here in the U.S. But sadly, it became much more than that. The family exploited her labor and trapped her there for years. And this eventually became a disturbing case of modern-day slavery.
4: That's right, Russia. It's terrible, but it points to a bigger issue of human trafficking in this country, especially for forced labor. And with us here to talk about that today will be Remy Adeleke. Remy is a former Navy SEAL who is now a filmmaker, and he recently made a short film about human trafficking. I am so looking forward to this discussion today with Remy. I am as well. Remy is incredible. But first, our producer Trevor is going
3: to walk us through today's case.
2: Irma Martinez is a Filipino woman who was coerced into indentured servitude for a wealthy Wisconsin family for 19 years. The case was a shocking example of modern-day human and labor trafficking. In 1985, at the age of 19, Irma was approached by a woman named Elnora Kalimlim. She offered Irma a job as a housekeeper at the Kalimlim household in America. Elnora and her husband Jefferson were busy doctors and had three children. Irma was promised job stability and a steady income that she could send back to her family in the Philippines. She agreed to work for an initial five years. The family flew with her to America under the guise that she was one of their patients. She arrived in the United States on a tourist visa. The Kalimlims reportedly knew how to bring a foreign citizen into the U.S. to work legally, but they chose not to. Had they done that, they would have needed to sign an employer contract, pay her fair wages, and limit her duties to those appropriate for her job classification. But when she arrived, the family took her passport and told her she owed them for travel expenses. She worked seven days a week for 16 hours a day, cleaning the home and caring for the children. If she slept past 6 a.m., Elnora and Jefferson would scold her and tell her that she should be concerned next time it happened. They led her to believe she was in the country illegally, so therefore she could not open a bank account and they could not pay her. They also told her that if anyone found her, she would be jailed and deported. Because of this, they told her she couldn't walk around the neighborhood. She was never even allowed to open the front door When the children came home from school, she would open the garage door from the inside so no one would see her. Despite both the Kalimlims being doctors, they repeatedly denied Irma medical treatment. When Irma had a broken tooth, they refused to take her to a dentist. And when she was doubled over from menstrual cramps, Elnora ridiculed her and told her she would never have children. Jefferson would often get angry after drinking alcohol and on one occasion threw a shoe at Irma. In the late 90s, one of the sons, Jack, brought home a girlfriend named Sherry. Sherry noticed Irma and became suspicious. After probing the family further, she eventually tipped off the U.S. Department of Immigration and Naturalization Services. She broke down in tears during the call and stated that, quote, No one should live under those conditions. That is just not humane. On September 29, 2004, FBI and Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents raided the home with a search warrant. The agents went into the basement and found a secret room. They opened it and found Irma shaking in fear. She was 38 years old. After her rescue, Irma was granted a T visa for trafficking victims. As it turns out, in 19 years, Irma's family received only $19,000 from the Kalim Limbs. The Limbs were ordered to pay back over $900,000 in back wages and were sentenced to four years in prison each. About the case, acting US Attorney Michelle Jacobs said, quote, "'Human trafficking is a form of modern day slavery and is simply not acceptable. No person should ever be forced to live in fear, virtual isolation and servitude.'" And so, what happened to Irma Martinez? And how does her story reflect a troubling practice of human trafficking in the U.S. and across the world?
4: Without further ado, we are so incredibly blessed to have the one, the only, Remy Adeleke on the show today. And he's going to be discussing with us the broader issue of human trafficking. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. You know, Remy... You were a Navy SEAL for 13 years, which is unbelievable and amazing. And then you went on to go into acting, directing. You just did a film called The Unexpected, which I just have to tell you, I watched last night and it's so mind-blowing. It's so educating and it's so deeply saddening. Kudos to that. It's a brilliant, well-directed you wrote it and directed, as well as you have a memoir book called Transformed, which I have to tell you, on the plane from Rome to San Francisco, I read and I was just literally blown away by your story. I mean, one of my very first movies growing up as a child was Coming to America. And to read your book And know your history and to know that you came and you come from royalty is such an incredible story. So if you could just share with our listeners how this came about, where you came from, I mean, how you grew up, all the things, all the things, Remy.
5: Yeah, I'll just feel free to stop me if I'm going too long. Never, (laughs) never. Feel free to interject because... You know, there's so much to my story that I skip stuff. So if there's anything you remember from the book or you want me to share, just say, hey, what about that? I, I'll, I'll, I, will, I'll, I'll, I will. I will. <laughs> but I tell people all the time that, you know, my story actually really starts with my dad's story. You yes. Know, because, as you mentioned, my, my, my grandfather was a chief in the Yoruba tribe. And our last name, Ade Leke, Ade means crown and Leke means is supreme in Yoruba. And my first name is actually Adé Remy. A lot of people don't know that. (laughs) Mm (laughs) They think it's just Remy. And uh, and it's actually Adé Remy, which means the crown has appeased me. So my father was born as, he was a firstborn son to my grandfather, who had like nine wives. And he kept on having daughters. And the tradition at the time in in Nigeria and Yoruba, still to this day, is, you know, the firstborn son becomes the chief and is the leader of the tribe and the family, whatever the case may be. And so my grandfather died when my, when my father was uh, about eight years old. So my grandfather died when my dad was young as well. And all the, all the wives dispersed. They were all given stipends and, and, you know, they all pretty much dispersed to different places. And my grandmother brought my father down to the south of Nigeria and, and Lagos. And at the time they were missionaries there and they were teaching science and math and a bunch of different things. And my dad was very intelligent. As a matter of fact. Before he was six or seven years old, he had memorized the Quran. So he was—he just had this this very intellectual, you know. He picked up things fast. He, he had a very diverse, wow, supernatural brain. Kind of sounds <laughs> like you, Remy. Was, I, think I got a piece <laughs> of what my dad had. My brother actually has more. He's a really, really smart guy. He's a—he's
4: an engineer, right?
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just moved back from Saudi Arabia. He was out there for eight years working at Saudi Ramco helping them find oil and electric, you know, I'm I'm not smart on all of this, (laughs)
0: so
5: out of context, please forgive me, but, you know, working on the systems to help find oil, now he works with DOE. So back to my dad, so so my dad, you know, he got it, he ended up getting a full ride scholarship to study engineering and architecture in London, and he went to London, and, you know, he excelled. After he graduated, he got his bachelor's and then his master's, and then he just started working and grinding. He was the first black man on the board of the British Financial Planning Council in the UK. Beautiful. And then he came to the States and he started traveling back and forth to the States because one of his good friends was the architect of the World Trade Center, uh, a Japanese oh, wow. guy named Mr. I always pronounce his name wrong. It's fresh in my mind because yes. uh, my, my story got picked up to be a movie with a major studio. I can't ma- mention it yet.
4: Congratulations. I have to interject here because as I was reading the book, you know, because we read it when we were driving through Italy. I read it when we were flying on the plane. And when we were driving, I was reading it out loud to my husband. And like he was so engrossed. We were both so engrossed. And I could see it visually. I could see it. So congratulations. Well deserved. Yeah. But a lot
5: of this is fresh in my mind. because I just finished writing the film. You know, after the writer's strike, because this is big, big writer's strike, you just start moving forward on other things. But, uh, you know, my, my dad's, again, my dad's good friend with Minori and he was architect of the World Trade Center. So my dad ended up being one of the first black men on the board of the World Trade Center in the United States, in New York. And so, and that was kind of how he met my mom, as you mentioned, coming to America. My mom's <laughs> dad story is the real yes. coming to America <laughs> You know, and, uh, but you know, they fell in love and, um, my mom moved to Nigeria and my my dad ended up going back to Nigeria a little bit before he met my mom, but you know, I'll just jump to that part of the story because he wanted, he felt like Nigeria can be like the West. Right. A lot of people realize that Africa in general is so, so rich in resources and Nigeria in particular is rich in oil, very, very rich in oil rich in natural gas, cocoa, gold. I mean, I was in Nigeria a couple of years ago. Actually, when I, when I uh, was writing the book, I went to finish writing the book in Nigeria and I went there to just get a feel of the land. And I interviewed one of my dad's mentees and he said that, you know, so many Nigerians and Africans believe that Nigeria is the cradle of civilization wow. because of how many resources come out of Nigeria, but also how intelligent Nigerian people are like just like just brilliant minds
4: yeah and yeah. uh
5: and so because of all the resources my dad was like nigeria needs to be like the u.s and so he went back to nigeria and went with, my mom was with him at this point and he started businesses and, and he had a, started an architecture firm an engineering firm he's had car dealerships and he had all of these different businesses and his goal was to create like a wall street so buy a plot of land and create like this massive Wall Street in Nigeria where people from all around the world can come and do business and trade and, right. and, and look at Nigeria, look at Africa in a different way. He was very passionate about his people. So he bought, bought this massive plot of land, almost the size of a small city called Marico. And he was going to use that land to develop his like, African Wall Street. And there was a military coup in the seventies, and when a military coup happened, the land got taken by the new military regime, and everything was just thrown into chaos. Politicians were executed. I mean, it was just it was just crazy.
3: How heartbreaking!
5: He waited for the Nigerian government to get reinstalled. and it eventually did. I want to say like it was the late seventies, maybe early eighties, and democracy was reestablished. And then he started going to court and started fighting the Nigerian government. And that's kind of around the time I was born. Like around that time, the Nigerian uh, federal government said to my dad, okay, what do you want? You have we proved that, that this land was yours. Mm-hmm. Can't give you this land back, you know, but you want your money back? Because he spent uh, 8 million pounds at the time. And they offered him the money back and he said, no, I don't want the money back. I want another plot of land. And they said, well, we're not going to give you a, another plot of land. And he said, okay, can you give me this wrong? Like it was a lagoon, but it was literally a swamp, a swamp. and uh, everybody laughed at my dad and they were just like, swamp, what are you going to do with the swamp? He said, don't worry about it. Give it to me. Because my dad was, as I said, he was such a brilliant man and he was forward thinking and mm-hmm. his mindset was, if I can build something where there was never nothing, then no one could ever say that was mine or he stole it from me or he did this or right. he, he did that. And so, um, he raised a lot more money and, uh, invested a lot more of his money and they gave him the swamp. And, uh, that's when he, he hired Dutch engineers and other engineers from other parts of the world and, and, Minori who designed the, uh, the World Trade Center. And they started dredging the foreshore to build an island, to, to make a man-made island. And, uh, and so I, again, I was born at this time. So when I was born, I was born into the wealth. I was born into, you know, traveling the world. We had drivers and 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 we had cooks and lived on a we didn't live in a house we lived on a compound on Victoria Island, which is like the equivalent of Beverly Hills or Coronado mm-hmm. or Amthens. We lived the life. Of, me and my brother, we went to a a, a very prestigious private school, and I, I remember when my dad would come pick us up or walk the halls, or people would like not like literally like bow to him like Chief Lake and Your Excellence, and call him all of these cool names. I'm just this. Little kid, and so that was the life that I was essentially born into. You didn't want for anything.
6: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring, with access to over six million active hourly workers. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
7: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this.
3: Remy, I really want to know more about your time in the Navy SEALs, and I have to tell our listeners, and I know you already know this because we've talked about this. My wife and daughter and I fell madly in love with you watching Special Forces World's Toughest Test on Fox but please, 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 Remy, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, your time in the Navy SEALs and like is that where you saw human trafficking becoming an issue? Did, did you see, I mean
5: I was and I wasn't. So I was in a sense that when I was overseas doing missions, we would hit houses, we would go after targets, big, big time guys, and they had wives who were twelve. He's a 30. 40-year-old men. Oh, God. Okay. they had multiple wives who were 12, 13, you know, pregnant, you know, and 14, 15. And so, you know, it's hard for me to say that's human trafficking, but at the same time, I mm-hmm. want to be careful about, you know, not I don't want to offend, but, you of know, course. Um, right. I know, in certain cultures, you know, it's 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 acceptable. And in certain cultures, girls and women are property. They're yeah. considered second-class citizens. And so, you know, so for me as an as an American, you know, that to me is a form of trafficking. Mm-hmm. And you know what, and we'll get down into it later, but yes. that happens here in the States. Yes. You know, and on, on a big well, as a matter of fact, you know, the United States drives the demand for sex trafficking. We, we, we are the biggest, you know, culprit as it relates to utilizing materials and and, and victims of sex trafficking, materials that are that are used that are created with sex trafficking victims, underage kids. So America drives the demand. A lot of people don't realize that, but we do. And so it happens here, but it happened there, but in a different way. I didn't have the when I was overseas, I didn't get the opportunity to serve serve in northern Iraq where the Yazidis, you know, um, were. I mean, you know the story from my shortcoming. That's that's a true event. You know, I can believe it was 2014, it was the last genocide that was documented by the UN, considered a genocide by the UN the Yazidi's people. Mm-hmm. The you know, men were murdered, the old women were murdered, and the young girls were 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 taken and used as sex slaves and trafficked for organ harvesting and used for labor. Right. And so I didn't get a chance to serve in that area. Uh, but I do have a really, really good friend of mine um, who did uh, and he served with some Yazid's people. He, he ended up, unfortunately, he ended up getting killed on Operation Charlie P. But, you know, so I'm sure he was exposed to in that level. But again, going back to my original answer, yes, I would say from, from the lens of a Westerner and American, but through the lens of, of of somebody in the particular cultures where I operated at, that's not human trafficking to them. But to me, it is. It's slavery.
4: Right, right. Yeah.
5: When you take somebody against their will and force them to even to whether it's marry you, force them to have whatever sex, it is, force yeah. them to labor, or it's slavery. You know, I, I, there are times when I even hate the term human trafficking because I feel like it waters down what it really is. It's slavery. Slavery.
4: Yeah, it's slavery. Exactly. That's what I was going to say because you know your movie, you know, unexpected, the short film that you were just talking about. That movie is all about organ harvesting, which was, I mean, completely mind-blowing to me and how it starts one place and then it takes you back, you know, within hours of how everything transpires. And it's all across the world that this is taking place, you know, where someone is supposedly gaining something but someone else is losing a life because of it. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
5: Yeah, that's that's one that I would say I gravitate to. I'll back up and kind of say how I kind of got into it. So after I got out of the SEAL teams in 2016, I was you know volunteering with a lot of different nonprofits. You know, the type of nonprofit that kept on I kept on getting reached out to by. Contact their by and these are different nonprofit, different, well, human trafficking nonprofits. Mm-hmm. You know, one year slave to nothing reached out to me and said, "Hey, we're we're doing a fundraiser for you know, human trafficking." And I never heard of, I never heard of human trafficking. I was like, you know what? Uh, but I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. I'll, I'll go help out with that. uh Then there was another human trafficking nonprofit out in Sacramento. Uh, I can't recall the name of it, but they reached out to me and it was just like, "Hey, can you come up and?" Help us out and partner with us on human trafficking. We hear you're a Navy SEAL and you got this background. Can you come help out? And I was like, sure, like I'll go. And it just kept on happening and happening. And then finally, I want to say around 2017, I I got contacted by a specific human trafficking nonprofit that partners with former special operations guys and former agency guys and, and women. Former analysts the CIA, DI, and all these, you know, uh, NSA people, and they go into other countries and here in the US. So they operate both in the US but also in other countries to help rescue children trafficking, sex trafficking. Now, because of international laws, of course, they can't just operate, you know, autonomously. Right, and so you know, the targets that they go after are targets where Americans. So they target brothels where Americans travel to to have sex with underage girls. Mm. And so that's kind of how they're able to essentially carry out these raids. And so they sent me a video, one of the one of the uh, contacts there sent me a video and like it was an actual, like a documentary and actual footage. And I saw it and I showed it to my wife and my wife was <laughs> just, so I was a doctor. <laughs> and my wife, you know, cause she hears and sees crazy stuff. She used to work in community medicine but now she works for Sharp. And she said, "I don't care, really. Whatever you got to do, whatever you get, wherever you got to go, whatever you got to do, do, go it. do something. You go put your skill set to use, and you go get these savages." Oh, and so man. I was like, "Roger that." And so I signed up, and I started working with this particular human trafficking nonprofit. And you know, our job was to go into these places. And my my job in the SEAL teams, I was a human guy. I was a medic, but I was also a human guy, which stands for human intelligence. So. I kind of lived best of both worlds. Like I got to work on like the agency side of things and running sources and building intelligent packages and espionage and tradecraft and all that other stuff and using that to to essentially build mission packages to go after bad guys. But then I also got to go on missions and kick down doors. So I was able to kind of utilize that skill set in the human trafficking side of things. And and I just remember you know going down to DR and just seeing things and. I was in, we were in this particular slum where the parents sell their daughters oh. to traffickers, right? And I remember walking through this particular slum. I was just like in shock. I was just in utter shock. And our job on this particular, this particular job, and i say that in airports, quotes, right. was not more, not, was not much of kicking down doors and getting traffickers and arresting kids. Our job was to essentially talk to the parents. And just say, hey, listen, this is what's happening to your daughters. Like, you need to stop doing that. And to also give the fam- give the families resources so that they wouldn't sell to their daughters. And they knew what was happening, but we had to really like say, hey, these are your daughters. Like right, you, can't, you right. can't do this. And I remember this one guy, uh, who was a liaison, uh, of course, he lived in DR, and he he saw the frustration on my face, <laughs> And he pulled me aside, and he's like, because. I couldn't understand it, and he pulled me inside and he pulled me into this chapel. And in this chapel, at the end of the chapel, the chapel was no no bigger than the size of two like handicap toilet stalls. Like that was like the, the size of the chapel. It wasn't big at all. At the other end of the chapel was his dead baby casket that had just died. The baby cut. was probably about six months old. Mm. And he explained to me that the reason why the baby died was because the mother, you know, she wasn't getting enough, getting enough food and sustenance, so her milk dried up. And so she was getting formula and mixing the formula with the local water.
3: Oh my gosh! The water
5: in a slum is not consumable, and that's ultimately what killed the baby. Oh! But he was saying, Remy, this is their plight: either they sell their one daughter and get money on a consistent basis from what their daughter is doing, or all their children die.
3: Wow! Wow!
5: And that really put things into pers- perspective for me. And what I came to realize in that moment was whether on the trafficking side of things or whether the victim, it all comes back to desperation.
4: Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
5: Like the parents are desperate for resources and the traffickers, which it's still evil. It doesn't justify it. They're desperate for money. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. There's so many people that are not even aware of it. You know, human trafficking alone is a multi-billion dollar industry. industry. It's estimated to be... 150 billion dollar industry internationally 35 plus billion dollar industry in the in america okay organ harvesting is really really hard to predict how much but we know that it's it's definitely a multi-billion dollar industry but it, it's just it flies it's, it's hard to predict because victims often die you know and and these traffickers are so sophisticated yeah these Organ harvesting rings are very, very, very sophisticated. These, they have endless resources of money to pour in, into, this, into this. And it's just, its these people are so intelligent. The majority of um, people who are part of these organ harvesting rings, what are they? They're doctors.
3: Wow. They're
5: nurses. They have to be. As a matter of fact, there was an organ harvesting ring uh, that was busted in Cairo in 2016. A lot of people don't know this, but Cairo, Egypt is the organ harvesting capital of the world, which a lot of people don't know.
4: No, I didn't know that. Do we know why Cairo is? Because of the
5: migrant situation, mm. the migrant situation. So you, have, so you have people from different parts of Africa that are, are trying to, end in the Middle East that are trying to get to Egypt, where, are moving up from Africa to Egypt, kind of similar to how, you know, here that we have a lot of people from South America, yes. that, which that's a whole conversation I'm going to talk about yeah. how the, the, the migrant power has created this massive human trafficking, just conglomerate on the border. It's, it's horrific. Right. But so that's what's happening in Egypt. We're getting a lot of people that are moving from Africa and even different parts of the Middle East to try and move through Egypt to move north into Europe. And so these people get trapped there and they, and they get desperate and they get promised, hey, you know, we'll figure a way to get you into Italy or get you into Spain or wherever the kids may be, but it's going to cost you. How much yeah. is going to, uh, it's going to cost you? a $1,000. a $1,000 to them is like $100 million right. to us. Right. And I, this And this goes back to desperation and, and the yeah. poverty situation and how poverty drives a lot of this and the, these victims being so desperate. And so they get caught up in selling their organs. And that's why Cairo, Egypt, Egypt is organ the harvesting the capital of the world. And it happens so much because so many people kind of consolidate there to move into other parts of the world and they end up getting trapped and they end up getting desperate and finally they end up giving up an organ. This particular rain that was busted and the way it was busted was in, in, in India, was this woman who was in this low caste system? She received an email from this particular website saying, "Hey, are you looking for a job?" And again, the perspectives are so different because when somebody in a low caste system gets an email for a job, whether even if it's just a cleaning job, that can change everything.
3: Right, right, it can change their world.
5: And so she got this email. And she's like, Oh my God. Yes. But she had to move up to, I, be- I believe it was New-, New Delhi. I could be wrong, but she had to move up to a, a different part of like a, a city part of India. And so she gets there and there's an apartment waiting for her. And the liaison, the guy who was the, who was a tra- actually a trafficker, I said, she said, All right, you're going to start work tomorrow. But before you start work, I need you to go get a uh, physical. Yeah. So she doesn't know any better. She's happy to have her job. She goes to get her physical, gets into the room. The door closes. On the other end of the room is the doctor and the nurse. What kept, what saved her life was her attentiveness, because she heard the nurse say to the doctor before he was getting ready to come in, "This is the one that is giving these oh orders." Oh my goodness! Oh, and she jumped up, got dressed. And she boogied out of it, alerted the police, and that's what essentially exposes all the harvesting ring.
4: Wow! And saved her life. Saved her life.
6: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring, with access to over six million active hourly workers Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
3: So this particular case, Irma Martinez, she was, I believe, 19 years old at the time in the in the Philippines, and she was brought over to America with a wealthy, you know, Filipino family that came to America. And essentially, Irma was their live in maid for 19 years. But really, she was enslaved for 19 years, basically. And, you know, she'd send money, she'd get gaslit, you know, she wasn't even allowed to like leave the home or say things, right? And she did survive. She did get out. And I'm, of course, jumping a bunch of, you know, a a bunch of the details, but it was because one of the sons, his girlfriend who would become his wife, they weren't married very long, but she saw something. Sherry. Yeah, Sherry. And she's like, this doesn't feel right.
4: That is the the bulk of the story is this one person saw that this was something was wrong here and she did something. She said something, you know, she she spoke up, you know, and I and I think that's what we all have to do. You know, and when we think about the bigger picture,
5: you said something that I don't want to lose, I don't no, will to lose it. We can all make a difference in this fight. Yes. And you know, I get people that reach out to me all the time, and they say, "I want to go on missions and kill these guys and do this and do that." That's and not like, what
4: it's about, no.
5: That's, that's you know, it's it's so many roles that can be played, and that it's, that's not that's not the role. And you know, the, the fact that the girlfriend saw something recognize the signs and symptoms of a traffic victim that saved Irma's life. Yes, yeah. That was that was why I made the film, because I wanted people to, you know, see the film, see that this stuff goes on, or like you, share Irma's story. Yes. yes. And then from there, begin to do something. And doing something can be as simple as like, okay, I'm going to listen to this podcast, or I'm going to find podcasts on human trafficking. Or I'm gonna I'm gonna dive deeper into Irma's story to learn more about Irma's story and find out what happened. Or this is a big one. I'm gonna find a a reputable, reputable human trafficking website. Go to their website and and take their classes uh, on how to recognize the signs and symptoms of a trafficked victim, because there are signs.
3: What are they, Remy?
5: Being controlled. The sense that somebody is Mm. being controlled. Marks on a person's body when somebody is when you see them and. Even kids at school, and they're they're sheepish, always quiet. They don't feel like they can speak because they feel like they need permission to speak. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that just doesn't just go for kids. That goes for men. That goes for women. On that note, I'll I'll share a story. A woman, a Delta Airlines... um, Flight
3: attendant, yep. Right?
5: She went on a website one day, and she studied the signs of a traffic victim, and she saw this kid on the plane. And... Every time she walked by, she saw this kid was right quiet. This kid was kind of looking around, nervous. The kid was very, very sheepish. The kid wouldn't speak even when she came and said, would you like peanuts? The kid looked at the, at the dad, and, and the dad said either yes or no, and then the kid said yes, Now, which is normal. Right. right. She trusted her gut, she trusted her training, called ahead when a flight landed, uh, I guess the, the police were at the, uh, at the at the at the and at the, plane. And mm. the plane. And come to find out, that child had been abducted or was being trafficked. I know. Wow. Like, so you know, going back to to Irma's story, yes, you know, we can all make a difference. We can all make a difference in this fight by just studying, looking, researching, hearing more, attending classes, short classes, and so we can all realize what it is. And most of the time. It's not as complicated
4: as we think. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
3: It's because of the Sherry's of the world, right? It's because of the people who see something and say something of like what you're doing, Remy. Like you said, like everything you've been through has led you to this moment. There is a reason you're a storyteller. There's a reason that you're in front of the camera and behind it. It's because you're here to
4: make a difference and each one of us can do something. And Remy, your book, the title, Transformed, I mean, that is what it's all about, right? Like how you continue on your journey. Things happen to all of us, but it's how we move forward and move onward. You know, as always on Facing Evil, we always like to end with a lightness, you know, like how do you through all the trials and tribulations, you know, that you've been through in your life, how did you get to the light or how did you stay in the light or how did you find the light?
5: Well, my mom, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the top of mind answer.
3: Same with us, Remy. Yes, man. same with
5: us. <laughs> she always reminded me when I was selling drugs and doing all the crazy stuff that I did in the Bronx, you know, my mom would always remind me what my name is. I brought that up earlier. And she would always say, Remy, that's not you. No. Like, like you're acting like someone you're not. This is who you are. This is who your father was. And she would always beat into us this importance of, hey, you're excellent and you need to walk that out. And so, you know, I had a I had a, a constant example of what it meant to persevere. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom, you know, she worked multiple jobs to provide for us. There were times where she didn't have enough food to feed herself. She had just enough food to do my brother and I. You know, I watched my mom just never quit, mm. never, ever quit. As a matter of fact, I'll share the story that I didn't share in the book. After my dad died, my mom had, a, she, she had, still has a cousin, who, a wealthy, very wealthy lawyer. And my dad called him up, because she had no money left when she came to America. She had no money left after she buried my dad. And she called up her cousin and said, hey, can you just loan me some money, like, just until I can get myself up? Because I don't have a nickel to my name. He said, all right, let me call you right back. Five minutes later, his wife called my mom. And she said to my mom, how dare you call up my husband and ask him for money? Oh. Who, do you, who, do you think, who do you think you are? Don't you ever do this again. And hung up the phone on my mom. My mom just lost her husband. And now she went to her family member, her cousin, who she grew up with. Who my grandfather helped raise because his dad was abusive. Mm. And he says no to her. She could have quit. Right then, yep. And somehow she just put one foot in front of the other. So for me, when it's like, hey, you know, you going to be a Navy SEAL? I'm going to be a freaking Navy yeah, SEAL. That was hell. You know, I want to be, be a filmmaker, freaking get out the SEAL teams. i 30 40 now, but 35, 36, whenever it was. And I want to try and be a filmmaker and start from the bottom. Everybody in Hollywood telling me, "No, hey, I'm going to freaking run through the wall. It's
4: going to happen. Yes, it is. That's right. This has been an incredible, incredible interview with you. We are just so humbled that you took time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. Mm Mm-hmm. Remy Adeleke. Mahalo Nui Loa. Thank you
3: so much for joining my beautiful sister and I on Facing Evil, but more importantly, for sharing your story and helping us tell Irma's story and teaching us that everyone has unlimited
5: potential. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Yvette. Thank you so much for having me, Rasha. I greatly, greatly appreciate you both.
3: Today's message of hope and healing goes out to the helpers out there, like Sherry Butong, who initially reported that Irma was a human trafficking victim. Sherry spoke up for Irma and fought for her to be rescued after years of enslavement.
4: Yes. So if you see something, say something. You can call the National Human Trafficking Hotline 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 888 888- 373-7888. You can also text the word help to two three three seven three three. 733. Sherry Butong saw the signs and said something and gave Irma her freedom back.
3: Yes, thank you, Sherry. Our emua goes out to you and to Irma Martinez. You are both shining examples of perseverance and hope. Onward and upward, emua. E Well, that's our show for today. We'd love to
4: hear what you thought about today's discussion and if there's a case you'd like for us to cover. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. And one small request. If you haven't already, please find us on iTunes
3: and give us a good rating and a good review if you like what we do. Your support is always cherished. Until next time, aloha.
2: Facing Evil is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The show is hosted by Rasha Pecorero and Yvette Gentile matt frederick and alex williams are executive producers on behalf of iheart radio with producers trevor young and jesse funk donald albright and payne lindsey are executive producers on behalf of tenderfoot tv alongside producer tracy kaplan our researcher is carolyn talmage original music by makeup and vanity set find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv for more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.